piece called Yes Singing from a fascinating album called Music and Poetry of the People of Kesh. This is a collaboration between the composer and sound artist Todd Barton and the legendary science fiction author Ursula Le Guin. Le Guin just passed away a few years ago and so they re-released this album and uh, I heard it. I didn't actually know this book, Always Coming Home, which is where she created this fictional tribe, the Kesh. They live in Northern California hundreds of years in the future. They are a peaceful people. They don't have Twitter. Uh, they don't have Fox News. They don't have anything like this. So it's a kind of utopian society that she's created. And this album that we just heard a little bit of is an integral part of the experience. In fact, what Le Guin wanted to do was really provide a holistic look at these people that she created. The book includes maps, recipes. Uh, she writes poetry for it, charts, even guides to the language that she invented just for the book. I mean, so it's, it's a novel, it's a book of poetry and kind of anthropological record all in one. It took her five years to create and the original publication include, uh, included hand-drawn illustrations by Margaret Chodos Irvine and a cassette, of course, of this album, uh, which we just heard. She and Barton worked on this album together, and uh, she had invented some albums, uh, some instruments in the book, some of which Barton actually built, including a seven-foot horn called the humbuta and a, uh, a kind of bone flute. They used field recordings made by Barton in the Napa Valley and combined them with lyrics written by Le Guin in this Kesh language that she invented. Uh, absolutely incredible. I, I love this album so much. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted. The subject today is musical utopias. Uh, for some reason, here in January of 2021, I'm 
thinking of escapism. <laughs> I'm thinking of utopian societies, this idea that humans have always had, that perhaps somewhere, somewhen, we could live in peace together. Uh, I hope that we can find a way to do that. It, it's a, definitely a great idea. It's certainly created a lot of fantastic music. As I said, composers have been inspired by the idea of utopian societies. So let's explore a few of these utopian societies and the music inspired by them on the program today. Let's start at the beginning, as it were, with the word utopia itself. This is a word that was coined by Sir Thomas More. Also, uh, he's canonized, so he's also Saint Thomas More. And it was a, a play on the Greek, utopos, meaning no place or nowhere. Uh, but also uh, there's a Greek word that's very similar called oitopos, which means a good place. So utopia, or as more originally published it, of a republic's best state and of the new island, utopia. Uh, it's very interesting. It's hard to know if, if he was being serious about this or if it was a kind of satire on the incredibly chaotic situation in England at the time. This is the 16th century. The book was published in 1516. Moore himself was trained as a lawyer. He rose quite high in politics, eventually becoming the Lord Chancellor of England. Uh, unfortunately, to King Henry VIII, who was a, a changeable, mercurial type of king. And uh, Moore was a devout Catholic when he refused to recognize the dissolution of the good king's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Well, his head rolled. Unfortunately, he was executed. So, uh, yeah, very difficult to know. And, uh, of course, one person's utopia is not necessarily paradise for someone else. That's definitely true here in Thomas More. Uh, the piece is Elliot Carter's More's Utopia. And Carter definitely, I think, takes a dark um, approach to this material. So uh, Moore says that there are some things I think we might think are good. There's no property ownership, no monarchs. Uh, I definitely like that one. <laughs> uh, no money. Gold and silver, he says, should be used only to make chamber pots. No armies, no war. But on the other hand, he does condone slavery. Uh, he says heretics, as a good Catholic, uh, they should be tortured and executed. And as far as I can tell, there's no booze on this island. So uh, that's a hard no, <laughs> for me at least. At any rate, uh, it is a fascinating concept. He also, much like Le Guin, he included maps in the original version. He was fascinated by language, the language that they might speak. He created a kind of shorthand um, for the book, which is pretty interesting. He might have been really, in some respects, you know, four centuries before Tolkien, uh, one of the first world builders in many respects. Let's listen to Carter's take on this. This is Moore's Utopia from Three Illusions, and we're going to hear the Boston Symphony performing.
somewhat dark musical take on the idea of utopia by Elliot Carter. We heard Moore's Utopia III in his Three Illusions for Orchestra, performed here by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and inspired by Thomas Moore's Utopia, a term that he coined that is still very much in use today. I love this piece. I really think that uh, this is vintage late Carter not so much the, uh, the the rhythmic complexity of his earlier works with metric modulation and that kind of thing, but this wonderful ear for color, which I think he exhibits in all of his works, but especially in the late orchestral works. Really nice take on Utopia. Let's move from this island uh, utopia <laughs> that was envisioned by, uh, by a lawyer, a devout Catholic in uh, 16th century England, and move back in time to a perfect island nation envisioned by a Greek philosopher in the 4th century BC. We're talking about Atlantis, envisioned by Plato, of course. So Atlantis is mentioned, as far as I know, only in his set of dialogues called Timaeus. And he has a fellow named Critias talk about tales that his grandfather would spin. I think his grandfather was a sailor. And he would talk about this island nation called Atlantis that existed in, in shrouded in myth. And Poseidon was the god who ruled or who protected Atlantis. He put his son, Atlas, over the island to rule it. Uh, Atlas is the guy who holds up the world as well. So busy fellow, had a lot in his portfolio, as it were, but he did a great job. In fact, the island was so prosperous that after many, many years, it became corrupt. Bad things started to happen, and it was eventually destroyed. So a lot of people have said perhaps Atlantis was a real place. Perhaps Plato was uh, not making this up, <laughs> even though Plato had a marvelous gift for fiction. I think in some respects, he was one of our first great writers of literature. Uh, and there was an island called Santorini that did blow up. So some people are saying, well, maybe that's Atlantis. At any rate, the idea that Atlantis did exist, that it was a perfect society, a utopian society, as it were, that it sunk under the waves and somehow continued to exist as, as an underwater human society has inspired many, many creative people. And I think that's the direction that composer Elizabeth Brown went with in her piece, Atlantis. We're going to hear uh, classified, amplified classical guitar, Ben Verderi, who also commissioned the piece, and Elizabeth Brown herself on theremin.
Beautiful music by Elizabeth Brown, inspired by Plato's concept of Atlantis. I think uh, here post-sinking, I think that uh, the theremin out of tune with the guitar to me really conjures up the, the thought of water or waves. So I think this is a uh, utopian society that somehow manages to thrive underwater. You heard Ben Verderi on amplified classical guitar and the composer herself, Elizabeth Brown, on theremin. Atlantis, again, is an invention of Plato, or at least I think it is. <laughs> it's from one of his dialogues, Timaeus. Many people have argued over the centuries whether or not Atlantis was a real place, but uh, I think Plato, in addition to being a marvelous philosopher, was a fantastic literary talent, and I think he made it up. We heard Ben Verderi on amplified classical guitar, and the composer herself, Elizabeth Brown, on theremin. Let's turn to another musical work inspired by Plato, perhaps Plato's greatest work, The Republic. I think many of us had to read this somewhere along the line in our uh, educational history. This is by the Dutch composer Louis Andriessen, a piece called Die Stadt, which is, uh, translates loosely as the state. It can also be the city, which is kind of interesting, a word that goes back to the idea of the city-state in ancient Greece. And Andriessen is uh, a fascinating figure. This is from the 1970s. We think of Die Stadt as the piece in which he really formed his signature sound, where he's taking American minimalists like Steve Reich, combining it with his own unique aesthetic. He was very interested in rock bands, for example, so he adds things like electric guitars, electric bass. And then uh, he was also he had this very interesting idea about orchestras, that they were too hierarchical. He did not like hierarchy. So uh, he loves to mix things up musically and not let any one force ever dominate or be hierarchical over another, which gives everything, even his large works, a kind of chamber sound to them. So all of this is on display in Die Stadt. I also like the way that he treats Plato, because like many a uh, utopian society, I'm not totally <laughs> convinced that the society described in the Republic is one most of us would want to live in. And Andreessen has both positive and negative reactions to Plato. In the Republic, Plato says, uh, well, first of all, he talks about justice. He says, what is a just man? What makes a man just? And he decides that the only just man is a philosopher. And so for that reason, philosophers should become the kings or the rulers of the society, or the kings should endeavor to become philosophers. They're the only ones who possess a special level of knowledge required uh, to rule. And uh, you should know that Plato has a very particular idea of knowledge. It is facts, like two plus two equals four, absolutely. But he's not like Aristotle. He's not going to go off on the, onto a logic jag <laughs> by any means. Uh, it's, it's a more spiritual concept of knowledge. Uh, and then in a more mundane realm, he divides the society into three classes, the auxiliaries, the guardians, and the producers. Auxiliaries are the warriors. These guys uh, defend the city from outside, keep the peace at home. And then the guardians rule the city, which is interesting. They're, they're chosen from the ranks of the auxiliaries. Uh, they're known as the philosopher kings. So they actually, the warriors become or can become philosopher kings, which is uh, pretty fascinating. 
And then I think Plato gets maybe a little lazy here. The producers are a catch-all. It's, it's just everybody else. <laughs> so it's the fishermen, the doctors, the lawyers, the merchants, you know, the factory workers. They don't have factories, but everybody who isn't an auxiliary or a guardian. What they do is they focus exclusively on what they're best at producing. There's obviously not a lot of mobility in this society if you're a producer. Then he divides the soul into three parts, a spiritual part, a rational part, and an appetitive part. He says, in a perfect individual, the rational part rules. If you know your Plato, you know he was not into appetites of any kind. Uh, this is not an Epicurean type of person. He, he was not really interested in pleasure. He was interested in the rational part of the soul. Um, and then he actually talks about uh, society in, in the same three parts. So these three parts of, of society relate to the three parts of the individual soul, of course, because everything's symmetrical in Plato. And the ideal ruler is dominated by the rational part, of course. Then the last part of the book is the three famous analogies. You may remember the one of the cave, especially, where there's the sun, the line, and the cave. And this is where, I, this is vintage Plato. It's this theory of the forms, um, knowledge, and everything that we see is an illusion. But uh, you can have, if you say the word chair, for example, there are many different chairs that pop into your mind, but there is a spiritual form for chair that is perfect. Every chair on earth is an imperfect copy of that. Pretty fascinating stuff. Okay, so uh, that's the Republic in a nutshell. And Andreessen says, I'm gonna quote him. I've used passages from Plato to illustrate these points. His text is politically controversial, if not downright negative. Everyone can see the absurdity of Plato's statement that the Mixolydian mode should be banned as it would have a damaging influence on the development of character. Uh, the Mixolydian is a minor mode, by the way. My second reason for writing Die Stadt is a direct contradiction of the first. I deplore the fact that Plato was wrong. If only it were true that musical innovation could change the laws of the state. Let's hear part of Die Shot. We're going to hear the London Sinfonietta under David Atherton with Synergy Vocals perform Part 3, Choir 2.
Music of Louis Andreessen from Die Stadt. We heard Part 3, Choir 2, London Sinfonietta under David Atherton with Synergy Vocals. Music kind of inspired by and also simultaneously a repudiation of <laughs> uh, The Republic by Plato. Really brilliant work. The Theory of the Forms especially, I think, will, will be something that we talk about forever. Uh, the Society itself, not so much. In fact, actually, an uh, interesting, interesting historical fact, uh, Plato got the chance to put his... Uh, his money where his mouth is, as it were, he was offered to become king of Syracuse or the leader of Syracuse. And he did. He said, oh, yeah, I'm the philosopher. So, of course, I'll do it. And it was a disaster. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, utopian societies are, are a catch-22, to put it mildly. Let's move to a utopian society in time. This is what we call a uchronia, uh, which is where the traveler is not moving to a utopia in space, but rather in time. Again, from the Greek, remember the Greek, ooh, in utopia, meaning uh, no place. Well, now we have uchronia, uh, meaning no time or not in time. Uh, so a uchronia. This is by H.G. Wells. It's called Time Machine. And the piece is by Michael Doherty. In the time machine, uh, the time traveler is a scientist. So this is not happening by magic. Uh, it's one of the first instances of science fiction in which the traveler is using a science-based uh, device that he created to travel forwards and backwards in time. Again, rather than magic or, or a dream or, or some other mechanism. Uh, and uh, he goes back in time, but we're going to move forward in time. He goes way forward in time, meets a group of beings called the Eloi. And they are apparently, to all uh, appearances, a utopian society. And they live above ground, but there's another group of beings who live below ground called the Morlocks. And it's very difficult for the time traveler to figure out the relationship between the two of them. Eventually discovers that they're essentially a, a, a kind of a symbiotic relationship, but actually the Morlocks are feeding on the Eloi. So probably satire here. This utopian society exists. Uh, it's, it's kind of like pigs that, that are, they get to eat anything they want <laughs> right up until they're slaughtered. Uh, I love what Doherty has done with this. So I'm going to read from his own notes again, uh, like I did with the um, entries in Time Machine is an adventure in rhythm, sound, and space for three conductors and orchestra. My composition is divided into two movements entitled Past and Future. By dividing the orchestra into three spatially separated orchestras, I represent the three dimensions of space. Forward, back, left, right, up, down. Traveling forward in time, the second movement is entitled Future and begins with a mysterious harp solo. I then introduce harmonic and rhythmic progressions into the three orchestras and patterns that become increasingly complex. As the music unfolds, two contrasting sound worlds emerge, one with rattling, brutal, pulsating music, and the other with lucid, lyrical, hypnotic, dreamlike music. Let's hear an excerpt of this, the second movement, Future, from Time Machine by Michael Doherty. We're going to hear the Bournemouth National Symphony, and the conductors are Mai An Chen, Marin Alsop, and Laura Jackson. Thank <laughs> you. 
music by Michael Doherty, the second movement of his time machine that is future, in which he's invoking the part in H.G. Wells' book, Time Machine, in which our unnamed time traveler travels far to the future, meets the Eloi, who seem to be a utopian society, until he learns that they're actually food for the Morlocks who live below ground. Just got a couple more for us here. There's so many to choose from, but I thought maybe we should go to the ultimate paradise, the Garden of Eden, and this wonderful, amazing opera by Christoph Penderecki. It's over two hours, so we can't possibly <laughs> play the whole thing, but I'll do an excerpt at the beginning. This is a setting of John Milton's great poem, Paradise Lost. And so I uh, won't go into that poem because it's, it's huge. Uh, I think most of us know the basic outline of it. But in the beginning, we see Adam and Eve in the garden, and then there's Satan in his lake of fire and hell. He uh, takes the other fallen angels, turns them into devils, and, well, they go to unleash chaos, or pandemonium, as it's called in Milton. Let's listen to a little bit of this scene, this opening scene. Pinteresky does a marvelous job of kind of conjuring up this gothic, biblical, otherworldly, spiritual, I don't even know what to call it, realm in his music. This is, uh, I think, wonderfully effective. Here is the opening scene of Paradise Lost, as set by Christoph Penderecki.
before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, thee I revisit, but thou revisit'st not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray. Thus would the day's seasons return, but not to me returns day or the sweet approach of even or morn or summer's rose or human face divine shine inward there plant eyes that i may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight
unspeakable thy justice seems. Why should all mankind for one man's fault be condemned? Is this the goes downhill from there uh, as we know adam and eve inhabit a, a perfect paradise uh perhaps pre-sentient is what it's meant to be before we're aware of ourselves before we're aware of uh our, our, ourselves as, as sentient beings separate from god however you want to interpret the the story uh that is the classic story of the fall of mankind in the bible as set by christoph penderecki well actually uh sorry as uh related by John Milton in his amazing poem, Paradise Lost, and then set to music by Christoph Penderecki in his opera of the same name. That's on YouTube, by the way, if you want to check out the whole thing. The entire opera is there. Unfortunately, not staged. It's just the music. Uh, this opera is not done very often, so if you run an opera company, <laughs> put it on. Uh, obviously, it's huge forces. If you run an opera company with an enormous budget, please put it on. That's all the time that we have on the program today for Musical Utopias. I want to go out with uh, a thought that I had, which uh, I hope is not a negative thought, but perhaps the ultimate utopia is forgetting. <laughs> uh, this is a piece by Thomas Addis from his great string quartet, Arcadiana. The movement is called Leth. Leth, L-E-T-H-E, is the river of forgetfulness in Hades, and the souls drink from it to forget their pasts. Perhaps oblivion is the ultimate utopia. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bostead. Thanks so much for listening.